From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for carving out a little bit of the end of your week here to join us on EWTN's Open Line. Our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan, is in the house. If you'd like to ask a question of Colin, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. I'm Jack Williams. Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every Friday, our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. How are you? How are you, Jack? I should say. Sound a little yeah, winded. <laughs> a little bit. One flight of stairs will get you when you get to be my age. Or and mine, my weight. for that matter. <laughs> <laughs> it's a combination of my age and weight that, uh, that, that, that get me. Uh, ditto. <laughs> so, yeah. So, Colin, I wanted to ask you. So, uh, our Holy Father just yeah. returned from your home in Native Land, and I uh, uh, had many public appearances there. I went to uh, one of my favorite places on planet Earth, the uh, Shrine of St. Anne de Beaupre, mm-hmm. and... Uh, had some beautiful liturgies, and I thought it would be a good opportunity for us to discuss just briefly here at the top sure. of the program mm-hmm. that everything that there is to be with regard to the Catholic faith and following and being disciples of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is not written down in black and white to be <laughs> done one particular way. That, that's and there, true. there is prudential mm-hmm. judgment that is strewn throughout the practice of our Catholic faith, and it would be good to be mindful of that as we weigh uh, the signs of our own individual times, huh? I I mean, that's certainly true, you know, and I think um, the characteristic of the Church, we tend to think of as characteristics of the Church as being rules and norms, and those are important because this is how the uneducated and those without a conscience uh, know at least what the standard is that they must follow. But the Church's real standard is is freedom. Uh, and we saw a good deal of that uh, this week, I think. Um, uh, people tend to be critical, for example, when they see the uh, expressions of uh, native culture and so on. John Paul II uh, received these kinds of criticisms, too, in some of his uh, travels. And I think we've been hearing them this week. And I must say that uh, Father D'Souza did a marvelous job of answering some of the difficult questions related both to that aspect of the faith, which is enculturation, how the faith becomes concretely present in a society without 
exterminating everything that was human bef- that came before it. Because Christ didn't come, the church doesn't come to a, a, to a continent or a place in order to exterminate that which is human but maybe misoriented, uh, but rather to ca- Catholicize it, to baptize it, as the expression goes. Uh, and so there is a good deal of freedom, and the church has done that o- over the centuries, whether it's uh, you know with, with the Irish on their island, uh, which still preserves many you know, features of, uh, of Celtic uh, religion, but uh, in a baptized form and practice, uh, at least sometimes and other times not, unfortunately. And in any of the cultures that the Church has gone to, it has struggled with how to do that in, in, a, in a legitimate fashion. Uh, and so we saw some of that on display. And I think, too, and I thought this was an unfair criticism that people made, uh, publicly made, and that is regarding the apologies that the Pope made. Uh, And, of course, anything like that is bound to find results at both ends of the spectrum. Uh, Those who say that the Church can never do anything enough to apologize, uh, and those who say the Church shouldn't apologize at all. But in the, in the middle, uh, there is certainly truth. Uh, John Paul II called it the healing of memories. Uh, it's the way the Church, being made up of sinners, uh, reconciles the mistakes that the Church institutionally made because human beings uh, hold office in the Church. Surprise! <laughs> fallen human beings, baptized but nonetheless fallen, struggling with their fallenness, holding office in the Church. Who ever heard of such a thing? And so the Church made mistakes, and they made mistakes in Canada, as it did in the United States, in Africa, South America, and different places. And the Church has to recognize that, and, and part of growing beyond those kinds of things is to, to apologize, to seek uh, reconciliation, uh, penance insofar as its, you know, its you know, particular cases might be called for, especially more recent things. And so, from my perspective, uh, knowing theology as I do, knowing John Paul II's efforts in this regard as I do, uh, I thought it was a pretty marvelous week where you find, for the most part, except those who have hardcore grudges against the Church uh, in Canada, being very receptive to the Pope and showing him respect and honor uh, and accepting you know, what he gave them insofar as Uh, as he gave it. Uh, Sure, maybe they have some broad goal of what the Church is going to do to apologize for, uh, uh, for example, obviously some of the same issues we face in this country, the sexual abuse, uh, and not generally by clerics, although that took place, but by those in church-run institutions, uh, residential schools, uh, and other places that uh, the Church served uh, the indigenous peoples in Canada. So those cases occurred, as they occurred with other religions doing similar things, as they occurred with the secular government doing those same kinds of things. Uh, because, again, fallen human beings hold offices in every institution on the planet. And so the Pope recognized those things, and I think those of goodwill accepted that, um, There'll be cases where they didn't. So I think there were a lot of things that people had questions about this week. Uh, I would suggest that they watch some of the coverage of the indigenous uh, events uh, available on on our YouTube channel. 
uh, and they listen attentively to what Father D'Souza and the other guests, some of whom were from the, uh, the native peoples of Canada. And I think they would be surprised at the even-handedness of it and the theological soundness of the approach that the Church... So uh, I, I applaud it uh, personally as a Canadian and as a Catholic. Uh, just about a minute left here in this first segment, Colin. Down through the ages, I think we've had a tendency as people and as Catholics to strive much harder for the holiness of the Holy Father than we do for our own personal <laughs> holiness. I know I, for one, am guilty of that. Well, you know, the, you know the, there's the old speck in the beam uh, analogy our Lord used, and I think we're all guilty of that. And again, we take stock of ourselves, um, and maybe the emphasis should be on taking stock of ourselves and not stock on others. Uh, that's what the Lord advised, and it's good advice. That doesn't mean that we see the humanity of everybody, whoever they are on the planet, whatever office they're holding. And, you know, God bless them. We should be praying for all sinners, as Our Lady asked for at Fatima, because we, we're all sinners and we all need grace. We all need to go further on the path of grace, and that applies to everyone who is still alive uh, and can actually go further. After that, it's a done deal, and we can't do much about it, pretty, pretty much. We're giving you unfettered access to a professional theologian here on EWTN's Open Line Friday, our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. If you would like to talk to Colin, the number to be on the program is 833-288-EWTN. It's a free phone call anywhere in the United States and Canada, 833-288-EWTN. Three nine eight six. Perhaps you're uh, listening in Canada and you uh, attended some of the uh, events of the past week. Uh, we'd love to hear your impressions uh, of those events. If you want to give us a call, the number again, 833-288-3986. If you're outside of North America, that number is one two zero five two seven one. 2985, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line if you are outside of the United States and Canada, and you call 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address, openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. It's Friday. It's EWTN's Open Line with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, Colin, you are forever dragging around that EWTN coffee mug of yours, that thermal <laughs> mug. I know you enjoy a good cup of coffee. I do. EWTN's Religious Catalog has got just the thing for you. It's a Mystic Monk Blend Coffee and St. Joseph Mug Set. This coffee and mug set is perfect for yourself, or you could give it as a gift. The set includes a 12-ounce bag of Mystic Monk Blend of ground coffee, 
and a lovely 12-ounce St. Joseph ceramic mug. Every purchase of Mystic Monk Coffee supports the Carmelite monks in their daily life and also in completing their Gothic monastery in the pristine mountains of Wyoming. The mug features St. Joseph holding the child Jesus and a prayer on the reverse side. The mug is microwavable and also dishwasher safe. It's available now at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. Free standard shipping on orders of $75 or more. That's standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-EWTN. And before we bring Darren on, I just want to give a little shout-out to uh, our good folks in Anchorage, Alaska. We want to say hello to everybody listening to us in Anchorage today on Catholic Anchorage Catholic Radio, KHRA 94.1 FM in Anchorage, Alaska. Our thanks to our friends Brian Metris and the Holy Rosary Academy, now celebrating their seventh anniversary of Solid Catholic Radio. Congratulations from all of us here at EWTN Radio. And one of those fine listeners is Garen in Anchorage, Alaska, listening on Anchorage Catholic Radio. Garen, welcome to the program. You're on with Colin Donovan. Yes, thank you. I have uh, a question about um, Protestant theology, and Mm -hmm. I have a theory about it or or, uh, a position. It seems to me that Protestant theology is prideful. And what I mean by that is uh, one of their main tools of evangelicalism is they would say to a, 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 a newcomer, they, they would say, if you was to die today and you were to stand before God and God would say, why should I let you into my heaven? And he would say, because I claim Jesus is righteousness. And God would say, okay, you're good, come on in. Now, it <laughs> seems to me that... Um, this is prideful, because um, who is central in this scenario? Is it God? No, he's asking the question. Is it Jesus? No, he's off to the side providing righteousness. It's the man in the center who is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, central in this uh, scenario. It seems to me incredibly prideful. Um yeah, that's my characterism. Sure, uh, I would like to see your take on it, and how would you characterize Catholic um, theology? My my take on it would be this: uh, we are all we're all products of our tradition. Uh, Catholics have the right tradition. I mean, because it goes back to to Christ and the apostles. Uh, that would be the basis of any argument I would make for the Church's theology. Uh, and that is that uh, from the early fathers, the consistency of the fathers with the later fathers, with the apostolic fathers, the apostolic fathers having learned from the apostles, the apostles from Christ, we learn from the fathers and then the doctors of the church who follow. And so the theology, we're stand, you know, like in science, we're in, and theology is a science, let's get that clear. It has a source of knowledge. Its data is the data of revelation. But every scientist must take what has been determined interpretively from the, you know, from the, the physical or the chemical or the biological or the geological data 
And they take what is given and accepted, and they build on that, and so it always pushes forward, and it's made great strides in the last several hundred years by the consistent use of of such a scientific method. Uh, The theology has a scientific method as well, and that is that that which the apostles taught and which the the, uh, fathers of the church uh, then in unanimity, and this is the this is the, the character that is necessary for an apostolic tradition, is that among the fathers, everyone who taught it taught this, and that there were no contrary teachings by the fathers, although there may be silence on particular fathers for the reason that anybody writing or speaking on any subject is not going to co- cover the whole gamut of everything. Um, and so that would be the logic there. So with that apostolic tradition, which the Church can test against the writings of the Fathers, and then the theological tradition, which sprang from that in the Middle Ages. And if you look at Aquinas, you see him citing Scripture, you see him citing the, the, the Fathers of the Church. In other words, there is, this, there is this whole approach, a scientific approach in theology to build upon what is a given, that if your ancestors in theology taught, understood scriptures universally in a particular way, I'm not abandoning that. I may be trying to go deeper into it, and that's theological development. You're going into the data. You're drawing more out of it, maybe things not explicitly said but implicitly said. So the claim of the Church, of course, is that everything that is theological development is in some way implicit in those two sources of scripture and the sacred tradition. In other words, continuity with the first century belief of the church. That's our approach, a very theological approach. Uh, And I think that puts Christ's center, obviously, he's at the center of the Gospels, he's at the center of history, uh, he's at the center of the life of the church, the Eucharist is the center of the sacramental life of the church, and so all of these things accumulatively manifest the Christocentricness of the church. Now, the other things the Church does, its belief in the Blessed Virgin Mary and her prerogatives, are all Christocentric, as the early dogmas, Marian dogmas show. When we develop, a, you know, you could call an angelology regarding the it's always regarding, you know, the angels who are ministers of salvation, as we learn in Hebrews. So there's always this going back to the fonts of, of Revelation and the apostolic tradition, and building on that, even though you now end up with many different theological divisions, soteriological uh, theology for salvation and how that works and grace and all of that, <coughs> angelology, Mariology, there's a developing Josephology uh, there that's sort of reflecting on Joseph's role in salvation. All of those things sort of run home to our Lord and the, and the, the basic element of revelation that in Christ all that was taught previously, as we're told in Scripture, is now fulfilled, and so we can draw from no other font than Christ, and that makes the apostles a font as well. And beyond that, we're simply diving deeper into that. Now, the Protestant approach, I wouldn't characterize it as pride. They're, They're going at it in what they think is the way that their tradition has taught them, and that is the Scripture is primary, uh, there's a lot of polemics against the church's approach for the obvious reason that uh, if that approach has any convincing character to it, then you have to get rid of the, the, the merit of that character. 
You can point to the scandals in the church today, yesterday, and the day before back to Judas. You can point to uh, the, what you think are the inconsistencies or the biblical weakness of things, and you can do that, but that's not the teaching of the church. Teaching of the church is not its theology. It's what the descendants of the apostles, the bishops as a whole, in union with the Pope, teach. And again, there is a stable foundation and a stable approach that acts as a last word and doesn't leave it to the individual interpreter. But the person following the Bible necessarily must do away with authority in religion and authority of anything other than the Bible. So that is the approach that has been adopted. And I think in all good faith, 99% of non-Catholic Christians are following what they believe to be a right approach. It's our approach as Catholics. We have to convince them that there is a logical error in that approach. We don't have to judge whether they're prideful or humble or whatever. I would bet most of them are humbly following the book that they believe to be from God, and it is from God, and they're following it according to their lights. Their lights may be in error, however, if it breaks in that historical tradition going back to the beginning. And I think that's where the problem is, and we recognize the good and the bad of that approach. Uh, and we love them for it, and we hope to draw them uh, to the only real stable basis, the one that's not built on sand, but the one that's built on Christ and on the church, which is Christ, as St. Paul tells us, the mystical Christ. That's where you're going to find the truth. That's where you're going to find grace and salvation. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Next up is Karen in the great state of Michigan. She's listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Karen, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello there. Hey, Karen. Uh, I just have a quick, I hope it's a quick question. Okay. Can you tell me the difference between um, venial sins um, forgiven when we receive communion in a good state, and venial sins forgiven when we receive confession. Uh, the, the difference, one is sacramental, the, the other one is not. <clears throat> uh, it, it's hard not to get a little bit into the theology of this, because in the sacraments, the Church recognizes that there is an exercise of ecclesiastical authority given by Christ to the apostles, and that is the absolution that the priest, or the bishop, if it happens to be a bishop, but anyway, the absolution that is given in the name of Christ and the Church. There you have a positive act which we receive in faith, believing what the Church teaches about reconciliation, about the sacrament, about the power of the keys, and so on. Whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you shall retain, they are retained running back to the Bible, as we were just talking about, back to the Gospel of John. And so, in recognizing that, we know that when the priest says those words, it might as well be Jesus on the other side of that screen. Ministerially, it's a human being, but effectively, it's the God-man Jesus Christ forgiving us. Now, in other contexts, and it's not just at communion time, Every time we can make a pious act, because I, I like to use this expression, 
you know that the sometimes the east is used as a as a stand-in for Christ to add orientum celebration in the mass for example to the east because the sun rises in the east and so that gives us a great reminder of the great light of the world Jesus Christ so think of it as when we're really homing in on Christ our needle is pointing east when we're the enemy of Christ is pointing west now there's a lot of direction in between and I think we can Pick that up after the break, right, Jack? 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. Grab one of these open phone lines. Plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Next up is John in Greenville, South Carolina, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. John, you are on with Colin Donovan. Great. Thank you very much. Good to uh, speak with you today. One of the questions, or my question is, I've been saying the rosary with Mother Angelica in the morning on EWTN, and I've noticed that, and it's been a while, so I've, I've noticed it for a long time, that when we say the Our Father in the rosary, um, Mother Angelica never finishes it with Amen. Yet that's the way I was brought up to always say, after you're, you're done with a prayer, you've completed a prayer, to say Amen. Is there a reason why... Uh, during the rosary, they don't say amen after the Our Father? Um, I don't think there's any reason but sort of Catholic force of habit. If you think about it in the Mass, we don't say amen because the prayer continues. Uh, but yeah, as a general matter, you can say amen and should at the end of every, uh, at every, you say the Hail Mary, you say the, uh, you know, the Our Father, uh, the Glory Be. Uh, sometimes if you're moving on into another prayer right away, you wouldn't uh, necessarily do it. Um, anyway, it is, uh, it is not, as the Italians would say, a peccato mortale. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's not a necessary thing in that sense. Uh, but it is sort of customary to say it after each of those prayers, uh, except uh, the Our Father in the, in the Mass. Um, I'm I'm not sure how the nuns got in the habit of it doing it that way, uh, but I would say in parishes you find that as well. And I think it's habituation to the the general public setting of saying the Our Father in the Mass, and from following that you don't think of it as the Our Father um, uh, routinely has Amen at the end of it. Uh, so I think it's uh, it's good to say Amen. I generally do. Um, I don't think it's. Uh, anything serious if you don't. Thanks so much, John. We appreciate the phone call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Before we went to the break, we were uh, talking about the difference between the forgiveness of venial sins uh, upon receiving the Eucharist and upon the Sacrament of Reconciliation. Yeah, just a quick recap. Uh, in, in the Sacrament of Reconciliation, we receive uh, an absolution given by the priest uh, through the power of the keys. 
It's as if Christ is giving uh, us absolution, and it comes with a great certainty. And what we bring to it, of course, is we bring our, 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 our sorrow and we bring our will to do penance. And if those things are absent, then the absolution does us absolutely no good. We would call that the piety and the devotion, the, what we have to bring to the confessional. Outside of the confessional, there is not the, uh, an absolution that is sacramental. So in the old Mass, for example, there was a, there was a, a, a absolute a absolution form, but it wasn't the sacramental absolution of the confessional, and so it didn't have that uh, power associated with it. Uh, and today, of course, uh, other prayers are in that place, but again, when we do in the Confidior or we do it in the I Confess or the Lord Have Mercies in the first part of the Mass, the penitential rite, there is no formal absolution, but what we do bring, although the Church doesn't give us absolution through the power of the keys, we bring our piety to that. And so any time by which our piety moves us, and sort of I was about to make the analogy of the needle, writes our needle, we can be forgiven for sin, for venial sin at least. And so that's the context of the various acts of repentance. And of course, right before we receive communion, we do it again. We have the Lord, I am not worthy. This is meant, the Agnus Dei as well, this is meant to, just before we receive, let's do this again, let's get it right, let's approach the Lord with a pure heart, with, uh, with attention and devotion. And of course, if we don't approach the Lord with attention and devotion, nothing good is going to happen to us because the Lord wants us to be open to him. So that's why we do it in the Mass. It absolves through our piety that we bring to the Lord, and he blesses that. But this can happen when we make the sign of the cross, any turning of devotion. And so the needle analogy was meant to show that, you know, we're often from one degree east to 179. We may be on the border, but we always have to be swinging back to the Lord, trying to get to east. And that's venial sin. In mortal sin, we're, we're pointing the other way. And only God can bring us back, and the church and the sacrament of reconciliation is the way that will bring that needle from some variation of west back to, back to east. So that's why we need the power of the keys. That's why we need sacramental absolution, is it gives us the absolute certainty of God acting in that confessional moment. At other times, we have to set our attention and our devotion on the task, but God can act in those moments, too, to take away the temporal guilt of venial sin. And, of course, through indulgences, that's an intentional setting that the Church gives us uh, in order to do just that. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Tom is in the great state of Oklahoma, listening on Oklahoma Catholic Radio. Tom, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. Well, hi. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Uh, I was uh, wondering about uh, exorcism and, uh, and what kind of training uh, the exorcist receives to determine or to distinguish between uh, a truly demonic possession and like maybe severe mental illness. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. Uh, well, 
exorcists are usually people with substantial uh, knowledge and experience on the theological side of this and pastoral experience, uh, appointed by their bishop um, uh, to that task. There are, for example, there is an annual training course for priests in Rome uh, that they can go to uh, to get more uh, precise of that, and there's also an international institute for exorcists and those who uh, who assist exorcists. Where obviously, you know, shop talk would be part of that. New, you know, uh, in perhaps some theological developments and so on. So the, a good deal of training. The distinction between the between the natural and the preternatural, which is where uh, possession and obsession and phenomena working through the nature of angels, in this case the fallen angels, uh, falls. It's not supernatural, uh, and it's not it's natural to the angels, but it's preternatural. It's above our nature, but it's not divine. And so distinguishing between the preternatural and the purely natural, natural sickness, uh, the effects of drugs or uh, uh, other, other things that might, mental illness, chemi- chemical imbalances or whatever. So what the church will want to do, and you see this in some of the movies that have been made on this subject, is to have the professionals in those discipline make that determination. Um, the Exorcist was, uh, was based upon an actual case, that movie from the 70s, in which that precisely the psychiatrist had abandoned the field uh, in helping this person and almost jokingly referred uh, her and the movie as a him in reality to the church. Um, I guess thinking that psychosuggestion that got them into trouble could also get them out of it. Well, the exorcists know it's not psychosuggestion because they see the preternatural phenomena. And so among those phenomena would be to speak on languages unknown. Uh, conversation in Latin was an example in that particular movie and in other movies that have been done, but it might be ancient Greek, it might be some obscure other language. But anyway, to manifest knowledge which is absolutely impossible that the person could know uh, on their own, uh, having never studied it or uh, being otherwise uh, arcane uh, to them in their own experience. And then, of course, there would be the physical th- phenomena, which you see in, in that movie and others, uh, in which there are certain um, a- extra bodily to the individual movement of objects and things like that, uh, which, again, human beings can't natively do, uh, but other kind of beings with greater uh, mental, spiritual power, if you will, natural power to them, uh, can do moving material objects, the spiritual moving the material as our spirits move our material, our bodies and our minds and our and our brain operations and every other process in us. So that's the that's the means to rule out the natural. The church does not uh, is not gullible. Uh, it does not rule out the natural and jump on the preternatural as an explanation any more than in uh, when people claim mystical phenomena or apparitions of Our Lady or whomever, that the Church simply says, uh-huh, okay, well, tell us what she said. It doesn't do that. It rules out all natural explanations, and only then it doesn't say it's from God, but they look at the preternatural to see what 
could be the preternatural cause here. And of course, there are two causes there, the good angels and the bad angels. The, bad an- the good angels don't possess people, so in exorcism, it's pretty clear what's involved once the natural has been ruled out. So it's very thorough. It's a practice been fall- followed at least since the Council of Trent uh, and the establishment of formal rules regarding exorcism. Uh, in the 1500s, based on historical practices, of course. Uh, the church has long experience in this. And uh, so that's where we are today. And I know there was an interesting case last year, not a case of exorcism. Well, it was related to it, where a noted uh, psychologist who is very familiar with this area, I think he taught it, teaches at Columbia University or somewhere, Said he was absolutely convinced that these were phenomena. These phenomena are real, uh, and I think that was speaking both as a, uh, a scientist in that realm, but also in uh, experiences he had help had assisting at exorcisms. Uh, so that's anecdotal, to be sure. Uh, but having ruled out the natural, the church is confident that the preternatural does exist, does happen, uh, and can be solved by the power of Christ. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Next up is Joe in Cincinnati, Ohio, listening to Sacred Heart Radio. Joe, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello. Hello, Joe. What's your question today? Oh, it's to do with Father, uh, with Sunday's uh, Gospel reading, Mm -hmm. Luke regarding the Our Father. Yeah. And uh, the priest in his homily uh, said that, uh, well, you can say the Our, our Mother, you can say <laughs> God is, can be Father, you can say Sister, Brother, Friend, it's all the same, or whatever you like to include in that. But uh, And it's in the Bible. <laughs> and uh, but he, he said, "Don't ask me where or something like that." Or and uh, I, I'm thinking, wait a minute, if I'm going to make something that's going to be, you know, catch people <laughs> off guard like that, I'm going to want to be able to tell them where you can find it in the Bible. And uh, I had well, I a guy. You know the I'm, answer to that, don't you? Well, I know what <laughs> Jesus said. <laughs> Unless they're, I mean, in the Gospel of George or in the Gospel of Betty or something, maybe it's there, but it's not in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or any of the other 70, well, 73 minus 4, 69 books. So, no, it's not uh, in the Gospel. Uh, this is revealed. Um, nobody should monkey with the language of Scripture and the implications of Scripture. Uh because although there is no sex sex in God, there is no male or female, he's revealed himself in a certain way because that tells us something by analogy to our own human nature, which he himself created, uh, which is the male and female and their different roles to the continuation of the human species. Uh, male and female are the two com- complementary organisms who expand our human race. Now think of the Trinity, think of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
There's a spiritual expansion there, and it's ongoing, and it's been eternal. We call it the processions. There is the love that, that flows in the Trinity, the life, the love that flows among the persons eternally. This is the giving and the self-giving, such that there's three persons in one God and not three gods. There is one God united, three persons united in that one Godhead. Human nature was created, and Aristotle had a very good way of expressing it. He said the artist creates according to his own nature. He puts himself into the stone. You know, the famous thing of Michelangelo tapping the knee of David with his hammer and saying, speak, or something like that. He had put himself totally into that statue, uh, considered one of the greatest, if not the greatest uh, statue ever created, that he thought it would just start speaking. It was so uh, so much of himself in that. And so that's what God did. He put his stamp on the creation. Or as St. Paul said of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn. That the word is the stamp put on the creation. So we're looking for that stamp. And in human nature, it's male and female whose life between them gives birth to another life, to another human being. And it's in that unity. This is sadly why marriage and family is being so attacked today, because others have different visions of human nature and different visions of man and woman, and they can't stand that this divinely created image of God uh, stands unassaulted and undestroyed, because it's an obstacle to their vision. Now, part of that, it's a very politically correct part of that, is this atrocious habit of neglecting revelation and referring to God as mother, to Jesus maybe as child, because we don't want to say son, uh, the Holy Spirit as spirit, I guess you can say, or Holy Spirit at least, because that's not a that's not a insult to a gender ideology. So that's part of that attack, and I don't know where Father's coming from. I just know that that's not legitimate. Uh, it, it's a lie about the Godhead. God has given us an image of the Godhead in marriage and family life. And that's where we look for it. And so to use the term masculinity, uh, to use the male term, is not to exalt men. We're probably much weaker creatures and altogether than women. But to, to simply recognize the order of creation, the stamp of the artist on the creation man, or the creation human being, if you prefer that. But that's there, and it's true, and it's ontological or metaphysical. It means it's part of the nature of it. Changing the language doesn't change that, no matter how much it might soothe those who, who, you know, who hate that, that idea of Godhead and hate that idea of human nature. And sadly, that's where we are in, in the church. I had thought the language question was come and gone, apparently not in some parts of the country. Um, but anyway, that's the long and the short of it. The Journey Home, Monday night, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, former evangelical and agnostic Dr. Abigail Favalli shares how she came into the church after a decade of postmodern feminism and agnosticism. That's The Journey Home, Monday night, right here on EWTN Radio and Television. Kent is in Champaign, Illinois, listening on Holy Family Radio today. Kent, thanks for holding. You're on with Colin. Good afternoon. Glad to talk to you. I have a question about... Biblical exegesis. 
We have 1 Corinthians 2.9 that begins with what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and so on. Similarly, we have 1 Corinthians 13.12, for now we see through a glass darkly. Some translations, I think, uh, render that through a mirror. Mm-hmm. And that is something that in my formative years, I understood to be a prescription about trying to discern more than what one has given, sort of like going and looking up at a ceiling with a mural of the heavens painted on it. But more recently, I see it as a challenge to go outside there at the real heavens and discern whatever you can uh, with whatever uh, intellectual powers that you have. And whatever you come up with, so long as it's consistent with the magisterial teachings of the Church, the reality will be transcendently better than that. But it's a challenge to try to understand more about God and to see more of his glory. So, which is the more accurate attitude? Well, I think it's clearly about eternal life. So that means it's about God, but it's also about us. Um, We place our hope in God. We love God. We place our hope in God. Uh, We believe in God, obviously, faith, hope, and charity, so the three virtues. But anything that we can know in this life, first of all, we have, frankly, we have a, a font of information in Scripture and tradition, uh, but it is limited. Uh, it's, you, you imagine, oh, here's a, a good contemporary analogy. Look at the difference between astronomers looking through terrestrial telescopes 200 years ago with 100 years ago uh, with just before space telescopes went up. And then you put up Hubble, and then you've got Spitzer, and now you have Webb, and everyone is an incremental, uh, deeper insight into the, the, the glory, if you will, of God's uh, creation, of his, the cosmological creation. Uh, so we're building on natural knowledge, and we get ever deeper into it, but ultimately... We will never know all of it, because knowing all of it is beyond our powers. And the Church is very adamant on on one point, and that is that only the persons of the Trinity know God perfectly. In other words, their knowledge of the, the Godhead and of themselves is limitless, it's eternal, it's limitless, as they, they themselves are. What we know is minuscule compared to that, and even in heaven we won't know it, but we will be satisfied. The knowledge that we have of God, of history, uh, we will have a new heavens and a new earth, as we're told in uh, the book of Revelation, uh, an endless source of contemplation of, the, of creation, I'm presuming orders of magnitude beyond web even. Uh, So we will progress in natural knowledge of the heavens. 
we will progress in theological knowledge of God, but the reality of both will be far greater uh, in the next life, especially after the end of all things in the new heavens and the new earth. As I say, it will, it will go orders of magnitude beyond Webb or whatever the next generation of space telescope is or, or uh, instrumentation that is sent up. True knowledge is acquired, but it's limited by our limitation. And even when we see God face to face, we will be completely satisfied, but we will be limited by our creatureliness even then. But, of course, we won't care because we will have everything we have ever sought. We will have the joy of possessing all that we have ever sought, and we will have the full satisfaction of that possession. That's the joy of eternal life. That's beatitude. Uh, that's, that's what we will all experience. Although for the greater saints, it will be greater, but we won't envy them, and we won't be unhappy with our possession of beatitude uh, either. So we, we go to the limits of what our capacity is, uh, and that capacity will be greatly expanded when we get there and we see face to face. Uh, quickly, Joanne would like to know, she says she was watching EWTN and a man said that we don't need to be baptized to have original sin forgiven. God did that when he died on the cross. If this is true, why are we required to be baptized to become Catholic? The only way that we know is to be baptized, but we also know that God can operate outside the sacraments as he did to the good thief. Uh, and so Pope Pius IX, back in the 1800s, the father of the First Vatican Council, uh, said this uh, very well, and that is, in God's limitation, we cannot know what means he will provide. But it won't be just, you know, it just won't be like candy given out at a parade. No, there will be a moral choice of, by individuals of, in whatever means that God uh, gives to them. Uh, but it will be unknown to us because we know only baptism the only necessary means that God gave the church and the church gives to the world. Colin, have a great weekend. I will, and thank you, and you too. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Back at it again on Monday with Father John Tregilio. Until we get together then, I hope you have a great weekend, and God bless. God bless.